will endure and become quality that sustains itself over a very long period of time. Was it worthy and educational? Probably not, but it really, really touched a nerve. That's Peter Maggs and the soundtrack to the kids' TV show Little Lunch, made by the Australian Children's Television Foundation, or ACTF. Peter now works as the head of education at ACTF, and he comes from a background in secondary teaching and more broadly in teacher training. So I thought he'd be a great person to help us explore short film and video from three sides. As a teacher using it in the classroom, as a teacher trainer supporting teachers generally, and as someone working with the creators of high-end television production. I hope you enjoy this unique perspective in today's episode. The best short films for lifelong learning recommended by teachers for teachers. This is Short Films Teachers Love with your host, Richard Lee. I want to start with this organisation actually that you work for because I was thinking about what an incredible change in screen culture there's been since the time that um, ACT have first started. And I know you're just new there in this role, but you've had a few dips in and out of there, haven't you, including some time back in 2004. Yeah. So tell me about uh, just the organisation, I guess, to start with. How do you think um, it has changed and adapted over that time? I initially came and worked at the ACT back in the mid-late 70s and I came in in what then was probably fairly traditional broadcast television period where the ACTF, as you mentioned, for 30 years, since 1982, had been making what we believe were high-quality children's television series, normally live-action drama, mm-hmm. uh, with our main philosophy being to make sure that Australian stories were being told. Mm-hmm. The ACTF has a rich history of developing uh, locally produced Australian programs for Australian kids mm. but end up being universally popular because they're good stories. Mm-hmm. So I suppose the change has been in terms of the environment of television and broadcast and how the industry of television has changed. Obviously in the current climate where people are now viewing content on a whole range of devices when they want to view it, how they want to view it, compared to 20 years ago where we sat down in our lounge rooms in front of our probably one TV in our house and watched things at a certain time that a broadcaster had decided when to show us in a certain territory, um, and that was the formula of television probably for a number of decades, and that's obviously drastically changed now. So, for example... um, we put up an episode of one of our programs called Hoopla Doopla onto YouTube, which is a preschool program that basically has circus performers, both Chinese and Australian, um, little short five, ten-minute stories. Um, we know that's being viewed mainly on mobile phones, on smartphones, and it's been, it's been viewed generally by what we believe would probably be young parents showing it to perhaps their two-, three-, four-year-old child. Now, obviously, 20 years ago, that would have been shown probably on a broadcast, probably a public broadcaster, probably at 3.30 or 4 o'clock or maybe at 9 o'clock in the morning. Now it can be shown any time on a phone, passed over to the child who can view that um, when they like. So the transformation of what we make, but more in terms of how it's been watched, um, what it's been watched on, 
has been dramatic. Your own history in education has had some interesting twists. Um, did you start out as a teacher? And, and also I'm interested too in your time with the state government's education department. I did. I started out as a secondary school teacher and I taught in uh, country Victoria here in Australia for about 10 years back in the 80s and 90s. Uh, and I taught in uh, here in Victoria in the Wimmera Mallee part of Victoria, which is in the northwest, uh, which I loved. And I taught at very small country. Schools. What were you teaching? Well, I started off as a as a general sort of humanities, social science teacher. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when you teach in small country schools, you end up teaching lots of things that you probably didn't initially thought you were qualified to teach. Yeah. Uh, I actually taught an agriculture unit at one time, which was somewhat amusing given that all the students were farmers, sons and daughters who knew 20 times more than I did about <laughs> agriculture. At the tail end of that, which was then probably early mid-90s when the use of technology, in particular uh, the use of linking to the internet, started in schools. And I was involved in a project with a couple of other teachers where um, at that time to connect to the internet you had to dial long distance to Melbourne, our major capital city, for the school to actually hook up through dial-up to the internet. It was horribly expensive and basically was prohibitive. Mm-hmm. So to cut a long story short, we lobbied put forward a proposal and were able to connect up about 200 schools to the internet for the first time without having to pay long-distance phone call connection fees. Mm. And part of my role was to then to go off and work with teachers at those schools mm. from a learning and teaching perspective of, okay, we've got this shiny new thing called the internet that we can connect up really tiny little schools, mm. quite often one-teacher schools that might have only had 20, 30 students, mm and then show them, okay, what can we now do from a learning and teaching perspective that opens up not just information but communities, colleagues, experts, connections for the teachers and students in those small schools. Once you could show them the benefit, they were incredibly keen to embrace that Mm. because they could see clearly that access not just to information but to people, to experts, to other classrooms really did transform the possibilities as to how they could teach and they were in remote areas where they were four or five hours away from the capital city in their state. Mm. They could just jump uh, on a bus and take the kids to a museum or to an art gallery. All of those things that for country people were difficult, being connected to the internet in that period of the early mid-90s suddenly transformed a whole range of things. So I spent about two years um, working as a regional support person, which was fabulous and it was a great period, um, and then I got tapped on the shoulder to come down and have a chat to the ACTF, to the Australian Children's Television Foundation, about what they were doing. And one thing led to another and they offered me a position back in 1997 to come and work at the ACTF then. Fantastic. It's always fascinating to hear you know, some of the, the places that you can go with what you know. So um, fascinating background. Let's talk about this idea of quality children's television. Um, I know that the ABC with its new kids and the Australian Broadcasting uh, Corporation with its kids channel ABC3 has a focus on entertainment first. Now, this came as a bit of a shock to me at a documentary conference some years ago when I heard this. Not a bad shock, just a shock to hear it so boldly articulated. It was almost like uh, the education, which was the grand driver of everything producers used to think about as quality, had slipped down from first to second place. Um, So I'm just curious from your perspective now that you've been, you know, in, in the 
uh, production space for a while. Do you see this as a good thing? It, it's really interesting. We're having a discussion here amongst colleagues yesterday around the fact that we have many adults, people in their 30s and 40s, who will contact us and talk about how much they loved certain programs they watched 30 years ago or 25 years ago that we produced. And we were talking about that issue of quality, what will endure and become quality that sustains itself over a very long period of time. And one of the interesting things with children's television is unlike perhaps adult television where something might be the fad for a year or two and then we move on to the next thing. There's a new audience for children's television every year in that a program that appeals to 10-year-olds will probably appeal to 10-year-olds in five years' time. Ten years. Yes, the haircuts might be a bit different, the fashion might change, but if it's a really, really good program. For example, probably our most successful international export we've made is a program called Round the Twist, which I probably can't keep now the number of times where I have a Round the Twist T-shirt that I got when I first worked here 15, 20 years ago. On weekends, I'll be in a supermarket somewhere in the checkout and have my Round the Twist T-shirt on. And the 25-year-old checkout person will look at me and go, I loved that show. A number of times I will hear that. Or I'll be at a conference and a 50-year-old teacher will come up and see the DVD up in the stand and will say, I loved that show. And they really, really loved it. And it, it was humorous and it touched a nerve and it was irreverent and something about that program really resonated with whole generations. Um, so it was entertaining. Was it worthy and educational? Probably not. But it really, really touched a nerve. So I suppose for us at the ACTF, when we look at making a quality program, it's got to be a great story and it's got to be something we think will resonate with the audience. Um, that can mean it's hilariously funny. It can mean it's touching. It can mean that it does touch on issues that haven't been touched on before or it represents the stories of people that haven't been represented before, whether it's minorities or uh, from Indigenous communities, etc. But it's got to be a good story. Yeah. And generally, if you do that, you will find that Kids all over the world will connect with that. The mm. Quite often good stories are universal. Mm. They're not niche or parochial. Mm. Um, it is interesting when we first made Round the Twist um, and it was shown to some overseas broadcasters, particularly in North America, we were told, oh, that's so Australian, that program. Mm. Couldn't possibly have any interest to kids outside of Australia turned out to be our most successful export and has been um, shown in over 150 countries around the world. Mm. So the fact was it was funny and humorous and kids loved it mm. wherever they were. Yeah. We will circle back to this question of uh, quality, I'm sure, as we go on. But I, wa I want to um, launch now into the first film that you've chosen to recommend to me. And this one is called Special School Students Identify Benefits of Digital Learning. You've got to make a decision as a group. You can't just make a decision on your own. It teaches you all different kind of skills and things that you thought you wouldn't do, you've suddenly done. Lots of new skills that you can learn as a group and in your enjoy. You got to see behind what happens in a film. Using the device, I have made nine movies of my own. 
Now, this is very much a short film with a title that says what it is. <laughs> um, and, and at first, I, I, I just want to give you my impressions. At first, um, it, it kind of sat a little bit uncomfortably for me because I, I kept wondering, is this a promo or is it a rough compilation of a few teaching sessions? But what it, what it did do was really give me a window into the world of kids using technology and kids with a range of special needs and their enthusiasm for media production was infectious. Why did you want to recommend this short? I, I love this. I'll give a little bit of background. I was involved in making this movie and when I was working in the Victorian Education Department, the digital learning branch, where part of my role was to go out and showcase good practice of where kids and teachers were doing interesting things with technology that actually was benefiting learning and teaching. And I'd been working with a guy who was a filmmaker who'd been doing this movie-making project with those kids at Nepean Special School, which is in the southeast part of the Melbourne suburbs here in Victoria. And I we worked with him. He said, oh, these kids have been doing some great stuff. I said, okay, well, let's, let's make a little case study of what these kids have done. And what stood out for me is that for those particular kids who had various disabilities, physical and in some cases intellectual disabilities, their ability to articulate the benefit of what they had been doing using, in this case, iPads, this was now probably two years ago, as part of a movie-making unit, both in terms of from making the movie but also from a collaborative perspective, mm. how the device, a portable tablet device, as distinct from a clunky computer or larger equipment that for them would have presented difficulties, mm. they could articulate really clearly mm. how this enabled them to be creative, tell their story, to work with others in a way that was really powerful. Mm rather than it just being, oh, this is some technology, isn't this great, we can go shoot some stuff. Um, for those kids, they could not have done mm. what they talked about without the fact that it was a nimble, flexible device like a tablet. Yeah. And that, you know, that's something so important in the process of learning when you can see that the person doing the learning can articulate what they've learnt. It's such a great test, isn't it? And and encouraging for teachers at the same time. Absolutely. And it's a bit of a challenge, I think, for teachers generally to say, hey, it's one thing to use stuff, but you need to be able to say, hey, do we really have a benefit we can point to? Mm. The second film is called I Think A Load Of Rubbish. How can you tell what is rubbish and what isn't rubbish? Well, the garbage bin makes rubbish rubbish. <laughs> People think of rubbish as dirty and smelly and flies hanging around it and all that. It's not what we do with it. It's sort of like how we think of it. So, so it might be rubbish to her, but it might not be rubbish to me. I love this one. Tell me about this one. It's one of my favourites too, and uh, it was made before I did my first stint at the ACTF. It was made, I think, in 1992, and it was part of um, the lift-off series we made had a component called What's Fair, which was a series of animations looking at philosophical issues from a child's perspective. And this particular video was where... Um, a couple of the, the team who made What's Fair went into a primary school, got groups of six to eight-year-old kids to sit down and they'd talk about 
philosophical issues, but in the context of making it obviously understandable for younger kids, this particular moment, what is rubbish? And, you know, one of, the, one of the kids says, you know, people think of rubbish as dirty and smelly and flies hanging around and all that. It's not what we do. It's kind of how we think of it. And, it, you know, it's such an existential sort of question that he – and, you know, kids of the primary age are really – they are thinking deeply and philosophically about a lot of things and we don't give them credit for that often enough, I don't think, do we? Absolutely. And there's the beautiful, I think, sort of towards the end where – one of the kids is talking about they've been on a holiday in the States and there were homeless people. I saw all these people on the streets and people just stepping over them and walking around them, stepping on their legs like they're um, a dead cat or something. They just judge them as like they were rubbish and dirt. They don't deserve to be judged as rubbish. So his understanding of how people can be treated in a way that we don't believe is acceptable. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the discussion about what happens when you pass away. And mm-hmm. are you treated like rubbish if you're buried in the ground? That's you should, right. As long as your memory lives on, mm-hmm. you're not rubbish because mm-hmm. your memory is, is obviously important and mm-hmm. uh, means something to people. So, there, yeah, some beautiful, as you say, existential there's, discussion. There's, there's some big themes that come at you. And, and also I, I'd noticed that it, it actually did feel a little bit dated and yet because it was such a timeless, there were so many big themes in there and, and even in environmental aspect to it as well, you know, what, you know, that we can reuse things, you know, there's lots to draw on for teachers to use. So have you, have you seen that used in different ways in classrooms? Certainly in my first stint here, given, just say, it is a little bit dated, mm. uh, it was used a lot. I know back probably 10, 15 years ago, mm. I suspect now probably because it does look a little bit old school, mm. the back has not been used as much, but I think as an idea or a concept, mm given that now that um, kids in classes have much more capacity to do their own visuals in terms of whether they want to do stop-motion animation or they want to create uh, some visuals over the top of audio, I think it's just a great example of how you could do something similar today where you interview, you have your audio, and then what can we overlay that adds power to that from a visual perspective? Mm. I just want to ask you one other thing because, you know, ACT, if you are a production you know, organisation and, and you're on more on that side of the equation rather than teaching or using it. And, and for any organisation, I think, that's on the production side of the moving image medium, you, there's always a challenge to stay in touch with their audience and to stay understanding what's going on. So I just wanted to ask you too about how does the ACTF do that? Given my role as the head of education, a lot of what I do is about obviously providing teachers and students with access to not just our programs and um, materials around our programs, but around the process of how we make uh, television, how we take an idea on a page, script writing perspective through to the storyboarding and then through obviously in terms of filming and post-production. So we do develop a lot of materials around teacher guides, support materials that give an insight into the process of television production. Uh, but also, and this will lead into the final film, increasingly around developing tools where students obviously want to see crack their own content. So not just about here is the high-end polished stuff we do, it's also about well, what are the skills and given now the ubiquity of devices that do let students 
go create and film and put together their own stories. I'm thinking too of your. Uh, I've I've seen some fantastic, uh, you know, hook up around Australia kind of classroom thing. Tell me, speak about that. I suppose in terms of given we're a national organisation, we're based here in Melbourne and Victoria, but our audience is an Australia-wide audience. So we've been using video conferencing a lot over the last two or three years where we've been running sessions where it might be with the cast of a TV show, it might be with the scriptwriters and directors of a TV show. So, for example, uh, the director of Paper Planes, the feature film that came out of it only months ago, uh, we had a session for students there, we had a session with the cast of Little Lunch, our most recent television series. We're having a session a few weeks' time with the author of the books behind Little Lunch and the illustrator. Um, I do a lot of sessions just from a professional development perspective for teachers specifically, which might be around the movie-making element or it could be the script-writing process involved. So it's about providing, I suppose, a window to the skills and expertise that as an organisation either we have or the people we have access to, as in the scriptwriters, directors, the filmmakers, and give that access to schools. And it's so exciting to see... Um, the way that, you know, and it brings in your background with the, the new internet that was coming in and all that sort of stuff and now you can do that. But, you know, the, the sessions that I've seen, it's just so good to see all the, all the little screens of all the different classrooms around the country and you must have a huge following now, but, you know, all the kids going, row and, you know, there, there's a panel of experts, some writers and, you know, hands up those who saw this show and hands up those and, you know, such engagement from so many different corners of the country. It's a really exciting space, I think. Absolutely. And I'll just quickly tell, um, we did the Little Lunch cast webinar earlier in the year back in, I think it was March, mm. We had the cast of the lunch, and it was about 60 schools from around the country, and the kids got to send in questions first for the cast, but then we would cross to that student, wherever they might be, to ask the question to a particular cast member about something to do with acting or something to do with the actual show or the behind the scenes. And there was a girl from a small school in Western Australia who asked a question saying, can I dream to be an actor coming from a very, very small town in Western Australia? And the cast gave a lovely answer back to us saying, well, even if you're in an isolated town, you can be rehearsing, you could be recording yourself on your iPad, you could be watching uh, high-quality programs and elsewhere to get tips. So they gave her all sorts of backgrounds. And the teacher from that school then went and recorded the girl after the session saying how grateful she was and how she'd just been cast in the school play because she'd been so inspired by the advice she'd been given mm. from the large cast. Mm. Uh, so that sort of loop of where kids that wherever they might be can get access to the actors, the scriptwriters, the directors, be inspired by that and then tell their story back of what that's now led to is part of what I've been trying to, I suppose, um, uh, contribute to at the ACT. That it's not just about broadcasting out things and wondering what the impact is. You want to see and get a conversation between yourselves and your audience. Yeah. And, and, and I sort of sit in a similar space trying to connect filmmakers to teachers and back, you know, and it's, you know, the feedback for filmmakers to go, you know, I've poured my heart and soul into this, whatever it is production, however big or small budget, but you just want to know 
did someone see it? Did it affect someone? Has someone has someone's heart been warmed? Did someone learn something? You know, and so that that feedback is just gold. It's it's fantastic to get. And it was interesting when you were describing seeing the sort of Brady Bunch style of here are all these in the video conference, which are those that haven't seen them, where you might have. 30 schools involved, so literally up on the screen what you see in either the Skype session or the video conference um, mm. software we're using were all the little screens on the five schools in WA, the six in Queensland, the mm. five in New South Wales, etc. Mm. For the young actors, the little lunch cast actors who are 12, 13-year-olds now, yes. they suddenly saw on the screen mm. kids from all over the country mm classrooms are very enthusiastic and as you said wildly hands going up in the air because the kids were obviously extremely excited to see their their heroes from the tv show but the impact on the cast who up until then knew the series had been pretty popular and oh yeah i believe it's going pretty well could suddenly visually see how excited these kids from all over the country were to see them mm-hmm. and to talk to them directly. Yeah. And I think it was an incredible eye-opener for the cast mm-hmm. because they didn't realise the impact mm-hmm. and every kid knew their character like the back of their hand and the questions they asked about in episode 13 when you did such and such. And blah, blah. Uh, it, it was, I think, a really, really significant impact mm-hmm. actual the young cast members of the show to see that, yeah. which Fantastic. Yeah, excellent. All right, let's um, let's talk about the last film, Stephanie's Little Lunch. You won't believe what happened yesterday at Little Lunch. Yesterday at Little Lunch, it was a casual free day, and we could wear whatever we wanted. I was so excited. I dressed up as I don't remember, but anyway, so I was coming into the library to read my favourite book. But something went terribly wrong. I know a little of the history of this because I was involved in some workshopping of a similar app you guys did called My24 with your predecessor, uh, Maggie Garrard. But as a, as a finished piece, I have to say, I always find these a little bit weird because they're a mixture of that really high production values, you know, wonderful sound, beautifully shot. And really average, you know, poor quality sound, dodgy editing, the whole lot. So for the benefit of those who haven't seen what's going on, tell us tell us the background of this. Um, as you said, Richard, this is based on we developed an app um, linked to the Little Lunch TV show that basically lets you make your own episode of the TV show. Mm. And um, it was released at the start of this year, 2016. It's a free app. So it's used by schools um, anywhere, really. Uh, and the app structures what you can create. You end up with a three- or four-minute movie that basically has five scenes. It gives you a template around the storyboarding, around character, plot. Is there a climax? Um, is there some complication of story? So it tries to give from that narrative structure perspective a sense of how we would have scripted each of the episodes of the Lunch TV show. And we ran a competition, which we're just about to actually announce the winners next week, next Thursday, the Little Lunch app competition, which the reason for that was for us to be able to then see the rich variety of things that kids around the country in classes could develop using the app. And as you say, it's, um, it's a mix of from production value perspective, and can you hear all the actors? Is the lighting okay? <laughs> uh, 
it's a bit of a mixed bag. But mm. the intention for us was to see from, I suppose, a content perspective how the teachers and kids approached developing those stories. Mm. We've learned a lot in terms of what we might be able to do to support them around simple tips as to how to use perhaps mm. your device in a way that gives you better audio, mm. better lighting, mm -hmm. shooting some scenes. So there's all sorts of learnings, I suppose, out of... Mm seen the kids create uh, given in some cases they were made fairly quickly limited time frame so i suspect for the teachers they'd probably say oh have we had another week or two we would have gone off and repolished and reshot that bit etc so you're right in terms of i suppose the production values and the example of uh, the, the video the stephanie's little lunch is just one of about 40 or 50 ones i could have shown um, i think the acting at its pretty good the, the girl who's the main character is terrific um it's a very small school Woolsthorpe, which is in the um southwest of victoria down near the coast the school only has 40 students so it's a tiny school um and i used it as an example where they very enthusiastically they made three or four of the videos and submitted them in the competition um, they don't have a lot of gear they don't have a lot of equipment um, but it was an example of where a tiny school in a fairly remote part of um, Victoria was able to participate in that competition. It's a little bit like the first film we talked about where, where the beauty of it is that you're basically working with one building block. It's one item. You don't have to mess with gear. It's, it's all there. Start and stop. This is how you do it. And if anything, it would give students, particularly at that early stage, just a, an intro and a taste of what's actually involved. And I can imagine, you know, for teachers teaching media, you know, it's a, it's a great way to get them in for students to then go, my goodness, I didn't realise it was so much work to produce quality content. <laughs> and then down the track, you know, they might buy their own little camera or get a digital SRR or get a bigger camera or whatever and plug in a microphone and, you know, all of those sort of things. So it's a great entree into that whole world for them to step into. So That's yeah. right. Uh, and I, I agree 100%. And I think We've already seen feedback from some of the teachers involved saying the kids now want to go off and be able to do more advanced, sophisticated things, mm. edit it in a way that's um, more advanced as well. So you're, I think you're 100% right mm. that it will be hopefully a leading to them saying, that was great, mm. I could do it all on this one device, on this one app, mm. but I really want to go away now and try and do X and Y. Mm. Uh, so hopefully it will be an impetus for those kids to want to go off and do uh better things using other equipment, but now at least they've got a sense of, right, well, I need a good story. Mm -hmm. I need a good script. Mm -hmm. We need to think about the characters. We need a good plot. Then we need to worry about our technical bits and our camera and our audio. Mm -hmm. But if we haven't got a good story, well, those other bits don't matter so much. That's so right. you're right. It's putting all the bits of the jigsaw together. Mm -hmm. Hopefully then it inspires the kids to say, I'll go and do something even better now. Mm -hmm. I like to finish up by asking people a random question. How do you learn, you know, particularly as a background, as a generalist humanities teacher, you're now working in an organisation that is a production organisation. How, how do you learn about filmmaking? Yeah, I, I suppose like a lot of people, I, I tap into communities, learning communities now, which can still be friends. There can still be real people that I know, or colleagues or friends who are either much more talented than me and uh, they're doing something for much longer than I have. But as well as online, there's no doubt that I think in terms of the transformation of tapping into online learning communities, 
where if you have an interest in film, you have an interest in music, whatever your passion is now, the fact that you can tap into so many other people who probably know a little bit more than you do, or in some cases a lot more than you do, and upskill yourself in a way that probably 20 years ago you would have to go off and do a six-week course in something or buy a very large chunky book mm. and hopefully make sense of it as you worked your way through it. Mm. I, th I think for teachers it's really about look at what other teachers are doing. Um, I think good teachers are always curious. They're always interested in great ideas that they could use with their kids, whether that means going off to conferences or just jumping online and seeing in learning communities online what teachers are doing and going, you know what, I reckon I could do that with my kids and I reckon that looks pretty simple and we're going to try that tomorrow morning first up in our class. So I think it's just being curious and seeing what others are doing. Appreciate your time this morning, Peter, and telling us about the latest and greatest things that the uh, great organisation you work for is doing. And uh, I wish you well as you go forward in that. Thank you. It's been a pleasure, Richard. I hope it's been useful and, uh, yeah, I've enjoyed it. Find all the links to this episode on SoundCloud. Join us next week on YouTube for the edited highlights of this conversation. Oh.